Oh, folks, it's such a great pleasure to have you tuned in today to the Paul Leslie Hour. We're tickled to be welcoming back for a second time Nashville Songwriter Hall of Fame inductee and hit record producer Buddy Cannon. Real quick, we need your help. Can you keep the show rolling? Go to www.thepaulleslie.com slash support. Pull the lever. Send the support. We need you and thank you for it. Take it away, Paul. Now, quick, go. Hello, buddy, sir. How you doing? Doing all right. A little early, but I'm all right. <laughs> well, ladies and gentlemen, I'm pleased to present a returning guest. We are joined by songwriter and record and record producer Buddy Cannon. Thank you so much for joining us. To tell all the listeners and viewers out there, uh, Buddy Cannon has recently been inducted into the Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame. And some of the songs that he's written, they've been recorded by Willie Nelson, Vern Gosden, the Oak Ridge Boys, Mel Tillis, Alison Krauss, George Strait, Billy Ray Cyrus, Craig Morgan, Sammy Kershaw. He has a long and storied career. He's produced Kenny Chesney, Willie Nelson. It's a great pleasure to have you on here. It's good to be back with you, Paul. An honor. To, an honor to talk to you. So, how has the morning been going so far? Today? Yeah. Oh, I got up and uh, a little earlier than usual, but, uh, you know, not too bad. I got some workers coming over here in a little while to do some stuff outside. I hope they don't get too noisy. <laughs> I hope not. So, how this being inducted into the Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame, that's a, a recent thing. How did you find out that that was going to happen? Well, I found out about, uh, I don't know, maybe a month and a half or two months before the announcement that I was, uh, that my name was in the running, you know, like in, the, in a group of five or six people who were candidates to be inducted. Uh, I got a call from Mark Ford, who heads up the Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame. And he told me that, and he said, I'll get back to you in, a, you know, eight or ten days and let you know what happens. And I was, say I was thrilled is an understatement for sure. And then when I got the call uh, a few days later, he said, yep, you're in. So it's, it's really uh, an honor uh, to be in there with with all my heroes and a lot of friends. Uh, it was a big night for us. We, uh, uh, all my family came, my kids and my grandkids, and uh, we were all sitting pretty close together. And somebody came up to me and told me there were more cannons there than there were in the Civil War. <laughs> it was a fun night, though. It was, it was a great, lot of fun. So the name Buddy Cannon, you're alongside, I mean, going going back to people like Hank Williams, but also some people you've written with, Dean Dillon, Hank Cochran, all these great songwriters. How does that feel? It feels great. You know, I mean, obviously, I never got to know Hank Williams, but I, my earliest memories that I have are listening to Hank Williams on the old battery radio out in the country, you know, and 
I remember we lived in a house that didn't have a indoor plumbing. Had no, you know, had an outhouse for a toilet and and uh, no no electricity outside. You know, and we had a we had a well that we had to get our water from, and it was it had round tile things that go down in the ground, and you had to drop a, a well bucket down into the ground. I don't know. It seemed like all the way to China. <laughs> it was probably 50, 75 feet down. And uh, that thing, I, I learned, I mean, I'm a little kid, you know. And I learned, that was my first experience with reverb, because I used to go over to that thing and stick my head into it and talk and sing and i could hear that echo coming up out of the ground and uh, it was i would sit there and sing lovesick blues and kalija and all them hank williams songs it was kind of crazy <laughs> well the last time we did an interview we didn't have a, a chance to go into this but i was hoping you could tell us a little bit more about your your early times you're from lexington tennessee correct Right, it's over about twenty miles east of Jackson, Tennessee. Can you tell us about your parents? What were what were they like? But my mom and dad were divorced when I was, uh, I don't know, three years old, maybe. And my dad left, and uh, there was, you know, he was an alcoholic, and uh, and. Uh, he and my mom split up, and he he was a drifter, you know. And I don't remember. I remember vaguely. I have one vague memory of him coming around during Christmas time when I was probably five or six years old. And then the uh, the first time I ever remember having a conversation with him, I was sixteen, and uh, mm. I was raised by my mother and my grandmother. And uh, at that time, I had two sisters, uh, Judy and and Joan, and we all lived together and uh, with, without a male figure in the house. You know, I had an uncle who was a musician who lived up the road about a, a quarter mile or so, and he's the one who nurtured my music. You know, when he saw I was kind of getting the hang of it and had a natural ability. He, he was great. He was a great musician. And he, he, he saw that I had some kind of natural thing for it, and he started taking me with him wherever he went. If his guitar was in the car, I was in there too. <laughs> and and uh, I still got his old guitar over here somewhere. Yeah? Yeah, it's a 1957 Fender Stratocaster. I'm hoping you can tell us about your experience. Not a lot of people know this name, but uh, well, some do. I shouldn't say that. Tell us about your experience with the great Bob Lumen playing um, in his band. You know, after I got out of high school, my wife, uh, my now, now my wife, my girlfriend at the time, and her family had moved from Lexington, Tennessee, up to Chicago to the Chicago area. And uh, uh, after a few months, I decided I, I wanted to go visit her. 
and I, I got on a train in Jackson and and uh, went to Chicago, and I never came back. Basically, I stayed up there, and and I got a you know a few gigs playing clubs around the Chicago area. One of them, we had a the, the last club gig I had up there was a band who was all the all the musicians and singers in the band were as good as anybody in Nashville. And we played this club called the Lake and Parked Inn. And they would book Nashville artists in every every Saturday, you know. Uh and that's where I first met Bob. They they booked him to come in and play on a Saturday and he didn't have a band at the time. So our band learned all of his songs and we played behind him. So, uh, and that was fun. Bob was awesome, man. He was a great entertainer. Even with a band he'd never played with before. He just commanded the house. And uh, when, uh, when I decided to make the move to Nashville, there was another guy that I played with at the same club in Chicago named Johnny Carver. And uh, Johnny and I had gotten to be really good friends, but I decided to move to Nashville. And the first day that I was here, I called uh, Johnny Carver and said, Hey, John, I'm, I've made the move. I'm in town and uh, just wanted to let you know. And if you hear of anybody needing a bass player, I'd appreciate if you put my name in the hat. He said, funny that you called. <laughs> he said, I ran into, they were both on Epic Records at the time. He said, I ran into Bob Lumen over at the record label today. And he told me his bass player had quit and he's got gigs this weekend and he needs somebody to go play bass with him. And uh, he, he, he said, let me give him a call. So he called Bob. Then he called me back and he said, can you be at Bob's house? tonight at seven o'clock out in Hendersonville. And uh, so they gave me the address and I went out and met with Bob and his guitar player, Steve Smith. And uh, we played three or four songs. I knew them all, you know, I was playing bass. And uh, uh, he hired me on the spot. And the next night we, he had a brand new record that I'd never heard before. It's called When You Say Love. And the, the next night, I was standing on stage at the Ryman playing the Opry, playing <laughs> that song that I really didn't know very well. And I was really nervous. But but Bob was, gosh, he was so good. I, I, I watch YouTube videos of him all the time, and I'm, I'm amazed at what a great singer he really was. You know, back then, there was no, no tuning vocals and you know, the way the guy sang is what you heard. It's what you got, you know. <laughs> and Bob just never had any trouble singing. It, it was just so natural with him. And, he, you know, he did he did impersonations in his show. And he'd do Walter Brennan and little Jimmy Dickens and Hank Snow and all them guys. And he, he just tore the house up wherever we went, at the Opry. Nobody want the biggest stars didn't want to follow him. He was so good. <laughs> but he was great. I love him. I think about him multiple times every day. He died when he was forty one years old. That was in seventy eight, right? Seventy eight, yeah. 
I definitely recommend anybody out there if if they want to go on YouTube or look up on Apple Music or whatever, Bob Lumen. There's just really, really some incredible recordings that were made. Yeah, his first, uh, you know, when he first got started, he was he was during the time of the Elvis surge, you know, in the late fifties, I guess, and and he was doing rockabilly. I mean, he's had some of the greatest musicians that ever picked up a guitar in in his band. He had James Burton. In the beginning, he, James Burton was his first guitar player. Uh, Joe Osborne, who played on so many big, played bass on so many big hit records. Uh, Billy Sanford, who's another Nashville session guy who had a great career. The guy that I was playing that was there when I was uh, in the band, Steve Smith, one of the best guitar players I've ever heard. Roy Buchanan was in his band. Uh, it's crazy. I mean, it's, it's just, there was some sort of magnetism that pulled all these great players toward him. I I don't know. It's unexplainable to me. Can you remember the first song that you ever wrote? You know, I was thinking about that the other day. I, (laughs) I can remember a little bit of it, but it was, uh, it just goes to show you how your imagination can can uh, can write the song, you know. Because I wrote the first song I wrote was called "Hobo Hobo Blues," and I never seen a hobo, never been on a train, hardly ever seen a train, you know. <laughs> I had this image in in my head of a hobo on a freight train, and I mean, this, you know, the song wasn't very good, but. It was the first one I wrote. I was probably about 11 or 12. Well, tell us about the experience you had with with writing for Mel Tillis. Uh, you know, I started really writing songs uh, when I was playing with, with Bob Lemon. Uh, and it was more out of boredom than, than anything else. We'd be on those cross-country bus rides and and uh, just started messing around with songs and uh, wrote a few. And, you know, I stayed with Bob from 1972 to 1975. And uh, then uh, I decided for different reasons that I wanted to get off the road right then. And, and I took a club gig in town here. And I, I, we had had a piano player in our band named Gene Dunlop from Louisiana and Gene and I, he, uh, we'd been right messing around, writing songs and, and, um, a guy who was running Mel's publishing company was a friend of mine. I'd met in Chicago. It's crazy how all this circles around, but I had, I went out to Fred Carter's studio with Gene and put down a little demo just for fun of some of the things that we had written. And I played them for my buddy, Jimmy Darrell, who was had just gone to work for Mel in his publishing company. I just, you know, I wasn't pitching them. I just played them for him. So it just, I don't know why I did. I just did. And I was at a 
a few nights later, I was playing my club gig here in town, and a waitress came up to me. I was on stage, and the waitress came up, and she said, you've got a telephone call. Kind of weird. And I said, well, what is, who is it? She said, well, he says he's Mel Tillis. <laughs> and it was the night after Mel had won the CMA Entertainer of the Year. So Mel's name was on everybody's tongue, you know. And I thought somebody was messing with me, but I, I went over and took the call, and he said, hey, uh, uh, buddy, this is uh, Mel Tillis. I said, yeah, right, you know. <laughs> and he finally, after a few minutes, I I believed it was Mel, you know. And he said, hey, Hoss, he said, I just cut uh, one of your songs. I said, what? He said, yeah, I, I'd written a song called Golden Nugget Gambling Casino about a, about the Golden Nugget in Las Vegas. And he said, I just cut it, and it's good. And he said, get your ass down here to my office, and we're going to listen to it. <laughs> so I knew where his office was, and uh, hmm. I finished up what I was doing there at the gig and uh, drove down to Mel's office, and sure enough, man, Mel and Jimmy Darrell, my buddy from Chicago, were in there, and and Mel had been in the studio, and he had cut my song, and we stayed in there. He cut my song and one other one. I forgot what it was, but we stayed there. That was would have been about ten, ten or eleven o'clock at night, and we stayed there until the sun came up the next morning, listening to my song over and over. And he said, hey, what are you doing today? I said, well, no, no plans. He said, well, I'm recording again at uh, 2 o'clock over at the uh, RCA. He said, come by and hang out with me. I said, all right, I will. So I went over to the studio. He did three songs, and all three of them were songs off of my demo. Mm. So my first cuts were... I got four at one time, you know, and he signed me to a publishing deal and I stayed with him for until he sold his companies about 12 years. He was, he was awesome. He was, and I got to play in his band, you know, he had the big band with all the fiddles. And when I was playing in his band, we had, there was either 12 or 13 people on stage. <laughs> it was big and it was fun. We had a great time. How would you describe Mel Tillis, the man? He was funny, humorous. He loved to laugh. He loved to make other people laugh. He was an incredible songwriter. He had a he had a big heart, you know. He was a he was a great guy, and I I miss him every day, you know. I'm so honored to to have had that experience. So, I mean, he. The only reason that he signed me was because he liked what I was doing. It wasn't because he was doing me a favor, you know, and it was very encouraging, you know, and it made me, made me right, you know, and he would show me when I'd bring a song in and, you know, had, had a, had a flaw in it, you know, or he would just point it out to me and, you know, I, he basically taught me how to write just by his criticism of what I was bringing in. Hmm. But he, I saw him do some really, really heart 
things for people that nobody ever heard about, you know. Hmm. Well, there's another really, really great voice uh, that, you know, you just you start listening to Vern Gosden and before you know it, an hour has passed and you, you still want to listen to more. You had a long association with Vern Gosden. Tell us about working with him. Well, you know, uh, I love Vern singing. You know, a funny thing was that, that I found out later that a long, maybe just a few, a year before I was in Chicago, Vern was in Chicago running a bar. And uh, it's funny how that everything connected, or a lot of things connected to my musical life ran through Chicago, you know. But uh, I found, I was a big Vern fan. I loved those uh, records he did on Electra. And uh, I found out, I was living out in Kingston Springs, Tennessee, which is a little community about 20 miles west of Nashville. And, and uh, I knew that Vern was getting ready to record. I'd heard that on the street. And I found out, one of my neighbors told me, hey, that guy Vern Gosden just moved into a duplex up here. And it was literally, I could walk there in three or four minutes from my house. And I said, holy cow, I know he's cutting. And uh, so the next morning on my way into the office, I decided I'm just going to stop and introduce myself. Because I, I, I had just written a song called Dream of Me. And uh, we wrote it th hoping Don Williams would cut it. But, but I thought, man, that would be an awesome song for for uh, Vern, you know. So I, I did. I, I left my house and drove up the hill to Vern's duplex, got out of my car, knocked on the door, and Vern comes and opens the door, you know. And there I'm standing face to face with him. And then I introduced myself, told him I was a writer. and Asked him if I could pitch him some songs. He said, oh, yeah, son. He said, bring me something out. I'll listen to it. I'm going to record pretty soon. And so th that night, uh, or that day, I made a cassette with, with about, I don't know, eight or ten songs on it. And uh, the next morning, on my way into town again, I stopped at Vern's house, and I said, hey, I brought some songs if you want to listen to them. He said, yeah, come on in. So we, uh, you know, he had a cassette player there in his living room, and uh, we played a little bit of all the, all the songs, and Dream of Me was the last song on the cassette, and he was passing on everything, you know, and he got to dream, got to dream of me, and, and everything changed. Like, I saw him come to life, mm. and he said, son, play that again. <laughs> and so you know we played again and he said gosh he said i gotta cut that and uh he said can you get me a, a lyric sheet on it and i said yeah i'll run into town and get one and uh <laughs> I, I did and and uh he cut it and uh and we started writing together you know and we lived he moved out of that duplex and built him a little house but it was only a half mile from me so 
he was at my house three or four nights a week, and me and him and my daughter Melanie, we would sit. She was about 12 or 13 at the time, and and uh, we would sit there, and he started showing her how to sing those harmonies that he did, those bluegrassy kind of harmonies. He, he told me, he said, son, you better listen to her close. He said, she got something in her voice. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, we we just it became a a thing. It, whenever he was in town off the road, we were sitting around the table at my house singing. Me and him and Melanie and we 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 sung the chorus to George and Tammy's Golden Rings. We must have sung that thing five thousand times sitting around my table. And he would he just loved to sit and sing. He would change the harmony parts up. Said try this, you know, you do this and you do this. And it was a, uh, it was just a thing. We we did it all the time. And I did. I don't have any video. I don't have any recordings of it. Hmm. We just did it. it. I didn't see a need to record it because he was going to be back the next night. You know. Hmm. So we just, uh, I don't know. We hit it off and uh, wrote some really good songs together and. Uh, I hear him on radio. I listen to Willie's Willie's Roadhouse all the time, and I hear Vern singing songs he and I wrote all 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 throughout the day. So other people like him as much as I did. Yeah, yeah. Vern Gosden was just special, special recording artist. There's one song uh, Vern Gosden has done it. A lot of people have done it. It's something that. I'm not alone. I have a kind of obsession with this song. I don't know why. Alone? Uh, What's that? A song called Alone? No, not alone. I was going to ask you about, you wrote it with Dean Dillon, uh, Vern Gosden, Hank Cochran. I'm talking about Set Him Up Joe. Oh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) A lot of people have cut that. And uh, tell me about that one. Uh, you know, that was, uh, Vern got him a record deal with, uh, Columbia, uh, in the, I don't know, about 86, 87. And, uh, uh, Hank Cochran was instrumental in helping him get that record deal. And Bob Montgomery was going to produce the record. And Bob wanted Vern to write, he wanted him to write the record. And so, uh, Vern and Max D. Barnes, who he'd been writing with uh, for a long time, they wrote a bunch of things. Then Hank and Vern were going to write, and they wanted to pull Dean Dillon in. Vern said, let's bring Buddy in. So me, Vern, Hank, and Dean went up to uh, Gatlinburg. Hank had a had a cabin up there on the, on the Little Pigeon River. And uh, we went up and spent two or three days or four days, I can't remember, but uh, to write songs for Vern's record. And we wrote a bunch of songs. I mean, a bunch of them are on that album. Some of them are on the second album. But Set Em Up Joe, was. we were sitting around the table in Hank's kitchen there. Some, I think Dean spit out that first line and the song just took off. You know, it just... It wrote, I, it, we wrote it so fast that it was just like a blur. 
you know. <laughs> I remember Dean did write that vintage Victrola line. Uh, it just wrote itself, you know. And then, yeah, you know, the, honestly, I didn't think much about it. I didn't think it was all that great when we uh, when we wrote it. And then when we got back to town, uh, I went with Vern in to play the songs for Bob Montgomery, his producer. And uh, when that when Set 'Em Up Joe came on, it was rough. I mean, it was Dean singing on just us sitting around banging on guitars. And when when Vern played that song for Bob, Bob jumped up out of his chair, and uh, <laughs> he obviously saw and heard something that I'd missed, you know. And uh he was cutting, I don't know, a few days later and he cut it. I still wasn't that impressed with it even after he cut it. <laughs> but then uh, we overdubbed that great steel guitar that Jim Vest played on it and that dropped the whole thing. I, I could see the picture then, you know. And it was a it was a big hit. I mean, I hear it three or four times a day on on Willie's Roadhouse, and it's been cut several times. Yeah, Randy Travis, Daryl Singletary, uh, Jamie Johnson, a lot yeah, of people right. like that. You know, uh, the day Jamie was in Key West, Florida, with his band down at Jimmy Buffett's studio, working on a record. And uh, I was in Nashville the day that Vern passed away. They announced it on the radio kind of early in the day. And my cell phone rang. It was Jamie. He said, hey, buddy, I heard Vern just died. Mm. I said, oh, man, I knew he was sick, you know. But I said, what are you doing? He said, I'm down here in Key West uh, working on this record. I said, why don't you cut Set Him Up Joe? He said, okay. <laughs> and went in and cut it right then. And, uh, you know, that was uh, pretty cool. I remember he says at the end of the recording, he says, there you go, Vern. <laughs> uh, I'd forgotten about that, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to have to listen to it again now. Well, what would you say? I mean, you you've had some great songs uh, that you've written. Uh, a lot of people know, uh, give it away that George Strait recorded. Could yeah. you pick a favorite song of yours that you've written that was recorded? Oh, I mean, I'm proud of a lot of them. Really, really proud. You know, I would say maybe dream of me just because, uh, I don't know. There's something infectious about the, the melody from from the birth of that song, there's been something swirling around with it, you know. And uh, uh, oh, that's one of my favorites for sure. Uh, I wrote a song that Joe Stampley recorded uh, called "Whiskey Chasing," which I wrote that by myself, and that's that's one of my very favorites. I don't know if you're familiar with that one or not. It's no. not out. Oh, I'll have to look that up. Yeah, that's one of my favorites. There's something I wanted to ask you about that I, I wish I had I had the first time because you brought him up. I had the chance to interview Jimmy Bowen 
and yeah. that you created quite a quite a whirlwind. A lot of people check that out. What did you learn from your time being around Jimmy Bowen? Uh, man, I learned. I was soaking it up. That very first session that uh, when when Mel Tillis called me and told me he recorded the first song of mine that he ever recorded, that was the producer on that was Jimmy Bowen. And he had just moved to Nashville from L.A. Or actually, I think he had stopped in Arkansas and stayed there a while. I don't know what he was doing there. But anyway, his he had just moved to Nashville. He and Mel knew each other from he had Bowen had produced Kenny Rogers' Ruby Don't Take Your Love to Town. So they Mel and Bowen had a relationship. So anyway, Mel was recording and Bowen was his producer. And uh he just he he let me hang. You know, I was I was a rookie. I was just learning. I didn't know what I was. I didn't even know what I was trying to learn, you know. But he, I don't know. He just let me hang out and and uh, I don't know. It's hard to answer that question, you know. <laughs> he he didn't run me off, mm-hmm. you know. And you know, hell, we were drinking and smoking pot and. And uh, I mean, Bowen liked to smoke pot, and I liked to smoke pot back in those days. And Mel loved it too, you know. So we it was one big pot fest, <laughs> and uh, you know, we just got we got along, you know. Uh, a lot of people, and he's not one of the most popular guys that's ever been in Nashville. But I always tell people the, the that I, all he ever did for me was cut me two number one records. <laughs> You know, on my song. So I, you know, and he, and he let me hang out whenever. He never told me, don't come in. You know, I, I probably annoyed the hell out of him, but he always let me hang out. You know, did you say you interviewed Bowen? Yeah, I did. I had, I had tons of people. It was just in the course of a few weeks, people kept asking me, do you know Jimmy Bowen? Have you ever interviewed Jimmy Bowen? And uh, finally, I think it was, I think it was Tony Brown who who put us in touch. Yeah, and it was he was fascinating to talk to. Yeah, he's got a rich history. Yeah, that's the truth. Yeah, you know, you were talking about uh, your your daughters earlier, and we have a question from a great talent who also is the daughter of a of a great musician. This came from Amanda Colleen Williams. Her father, of course, was the late Kim Williams. But I thought she's got a great question for you. She wanted to know, as a family man and father of two successful daughters in the music business, have you found balance over the years between work and home life? Oh, you know, the last, uh, I quit drinking. I, I quit drinking and drugs in 1989. Prior to that, I had no balance at all. You know, I'm amazed I could walk across the floor. But I, after that, after I put the alcohol out of my life, it's, uh, I started realizing the value of home, home 
and and my kids and uh i think i kind of have found a, a way to enjoy the best of all of it you know without without uh either one interfering with the other i'm proud of my 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 daughter's melanie the great singer and marla is a in my opinion she's in the top three or four best songwriters in nashville right now and my older daughter michelle she's not in the music business but she she's a very hard working uh girl at uh she works in a in a law office and has a lot of people uh that rely on her hmm. you know well she had a second part of the question uh she wanted to know, do you think that having daughters has shaped your artistry? Uh, well, uh, to a degree, you know, uh, I mean, I, I think, I mean, those early songs when I was writing with, for Mel, uh, Mel Tillis, were pretty much, I was writing what my craziness was putting me through. You know, and a lot of it had to do with my kids. Uh, uh, you know, my coming home drunk and things they would say to me uh, in defense of their mom, you know. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it spills over, you know. Well, thank you to Amanda Colleen Williams for those questions. Hey, Amanda. I, yeah. <laughs> uh there's something that I wanted to uh, to to ask you about. The you have been with Kenny Chesney once you started producing him. He's you've been produ his producer all this time. You know you want to talk about a phenomenon in the music business. Could you begin to explain what is the what is the mystery or the magic of of Kenny Chesney? Why do you think that so many people have are such fans of his? Well, he uh, he makes music they can relate to. You know, he he is a, uh, he loves great songs. He, he's not a fan of mediocrity. You know, as far as songs go, and uh, I, you know, uh, it's. Uh, I started with him, I think, in '96. First record we made, and uh, I learned how to make better records by working with him. He says I taught him how to make records. You know, it's it's. I think it boils down to the fact that I respect him as much as he evidently respects me. You know, we've never had a crossword, never, not one time. Hmm. And, uh, you know, when he got, I was, I was working for Mercury Records back in the early, around 1990 or so. And, um, uh, Kenny signed a publishing deal with Acuff Rose Publishing, which was their office was directly across the street from, from my office. I could walk over there. All I had to do was wait for the cars to go by, you know? And, uh, I Kenny had come over with with some of the pluggers and they introduced him and said this is a guy we just signed songwriter we just signed and uh you know so I got to know him 
he was he would uh, we had a receptionist over there that Kenny was uh, taken by you know so he would uh, he would come over and hang out in the lobby and flirt with her name was Molly he would <laughs> flirt with Molly every day he'd be over there hanging out in the lobby and he you know he'd play me a song every now and then and uh, one day he came in and and Molly came back there she said hey Kenny's at Chesney's out there. He wants to talk to you. I said, well, send him in. So uh, he comes in. He said, buddy, he said, hey, man. He said, I just got me a record deal. I didn't even know he was trying to be an artist. I thought he was just a songwriter, you know. And at, at the time, Norrell Wilson and I were producing Sammy Kershaw, which was the first artist I ever produced. It just happened that we had our first single was a hit big hit and uh and sent, uh we were having putting singles out that were every, they were one hit after another you know we were on about our third or fourth single and then Kenny comes in and says he just got signed and he loved our Sammy records loved the way they sounded he said I want you and Noro to to uh produce my album well I had been button heads with a head of our record label that I worked at and I wanted to produce more records and I wasn't getting that chance you know and uh, he told me not to come in. He, he had allowed me to do a George Jones album with Noro because, only because George had called him up personally and asked him if we could and uh he told me, he said, I'm going to let you do this because it's George, but don't come back in here wanting to do another project that's not on the label. He didn't want me doing an outside uh, project, but he wasn't letting me doing, do any inside things. And we were, we were, our, the only one I had done was platinum album, you know? Hmm. And uh, so anyway, I had to tell Kenny, I can't. You know, and that killed me because that's what I, that was the next step that I could take, you know. So Kenny said, okay, man. So he went to Barry Beckett and, uh, and Beckett ended up doing his first album and his second album. And by that, by that time, I had gotten fed up with, with my lack of progress at the record label and I, I had quit. I had uh, made me a publishing deal with Warner Chapel that gave me enough money I could live on without having that record company gig. So I I just quit that. And uh, it had been about three weeks, I guess, after I quit the label. I got a phone call from Renee Bell, who worked over at uh, RCA BNA Records. And she said, hey, uh, Kenny just uh, called me and he said he heard that you're not at the record label anymore. He said he wants to meet with you and talk about uh, maybe y'all producing them now. So that that's the way that went down. You know, me and Naro met with Kenny and he said, can you do it now? I said, yeah, yeah. So he basically waited two or three years and uh, until I was free, you know, and we... Our first record we cut was uh, 
because he's got it all. And it was his, I think it was his second number one. I, I think he, the last record, the last single that they put out that Barry had, had produced was number one, I believe. But uh, that started it. And throughout these years, there's only one song he's put out as a single that I didn't have, you know, wasn't produced or on. That's amazing. You know, I look back, I, I can't believe how fast the time has gone. And I can't believe how many songs we've recorded. And I can't believe how successful he's been. And he's he's such a a smart guy you know, on top of being a great human being. Mm. Uh, he is, I mean, everything, he sees a way to to connect every everything to to something that will further where he is, you know. Hmm. He does it without hurting people. I mean, right. he still has, he's got guys who work for him inside his t uh, touring operation, guys he went to high school with. Hmm. You know, they've been with him throughout throughout his his life, you know. They made a pact back when they were in school that if any either one of them ever got successful, they would take care of the rest of them. Oh, nice. And talk about an incredible range. You know, the, some of the you've got all all just all types of songs that he's done. I think like just a great range as a singer. Yeah, he's he's a. Uh... You know, he just loves great songs. It doesn't matter what it is. You know, people always call me and or send me emails and what are you looking for? <laughs> I say, all I know to tell them is I'm looking for something I've never heard before. <laughs> you know? And uh, it, it's hard to, it's a hard question to answer. <laughs> you know, I'm just looking for something great. And everybody's, uh, idea of what's great is different it's all opinions you know so it, it just happens that what i think is good and great is pretty much the same thing that kenny thinks is good or great you know we our opinions on things are are intertwined you're tapping onto something that i've always wondered I always wondered, for, for a man like yourself, are you just getting bombarded all the time with people trying to get you to listen to something? Or, I mean, you know, listen to my song. Does that happen all the time? Yeah. Yeah, it does. You know, but that's just, that goes with the territory. You know, I listen to as much as I can, and uh, it's impossible to listen to everything. Mm. You know? And, you know, there are, there are reasons that that producers who are songwriters. There are reasons that that uh, you hit a wall when you're trying to pitch them a song because you know somebody might pitch you a song that's got a line in it that is that that I've got the same line in a song I wrote ten, fifteen years ago. But if something if my song comes out after they sent me their song, then they think I've stolen their song, you know. Yeah. There, there are two instances 
where I've had to deal with lawsuit where people thought that 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 a song I wrote has was derived from their song, you know, and it's <laughs> that ain't that ain't me, you know. Yeah. No. Uh, so that that's that's a problem, you know, and people people don't understand. They think you just think you're too good to listen to their song. That's not it. It's it's a legal uh thing, you know, and it's very, very expensive to prove you didn't do anything wrong. Yeah. You know. And uh I don't like that. That to, probably my worst two days uh, as far as disappointing and uh wishing i was doing something else for a living were the two days that that i found out i was being sued by other by two two or three other songwriters who thought i had stolen their song yeah it's pretty it's uh pretty horrifying when someone accuses you of stealing something and and you (laughs) didn't you know yeah no no doubt well do you have any memory of the duet that you you all did, Kenny Chesney with Jimmy Buffett, of trying to reason with the hurricane season? Uh, yeah, you know, we cut the track uh, here in Nashville, and uh, uh, it was just a matter of uh, it was just a matter of tracking down Jimmy Buffett, you know, and. I think he actually ended up singing that in uh, singing his part in Hawaii in a hotel room. <laughs> Mac McAnally, uh, who uh, is a great friend of ours, and uh, Kenny's done a lot of his songs. Uh, he works for Buffett, you know, plays in his band, and uh, Mac kind of steered the ship to to get Buffett on that song. And I'm pretty sure he cut it in a hotel room in Hawaii. Hmm. I just wanted to ask you, as a writer yourself, you know, you, you did a couple of these albums with Willie Nelson of Frank Sinatra type material. In fact, a lot of Frank Sinatra songs. What do you think about that kind of music, the American songbook? Oh, man, I love that stuff. I mean, it's uh, soothing. You know, it's soothing. It makes you smile. Uh, some of it makes you sad, like cottage for sale. You know that that that's on the on the uh, the latest album we did of Sinatra song. We did two two Sinatra tribute things. Cottage for sale is uh, on the, the latter album, and. Uh, that song, I've tried to get somebody to cut it for 20 years. Because hmm. uh, it fits. I mean, it's like a, it's one of the best all-around songs. I mean, it's not just a old pop jazz song. I mean, the lyrics are country as anything. I mean, Hank Cochran could have written that song. I mean, it, it's a universal thing, you know. Uh, I don't know, and and getting to do those with Willie is uh, he loves them. I mean, he his whole life, you know, he's getting ready to be eighty nine years old or something, 
and his whole life he's been singing those songs, you know. And uh, he, it's just natural as as riding a bicycle to him, you know. So we did the first time uh, we ventured into that world as far as me and Willie working together was uh I don't know about five six years ago we did an album of Gershwin songs yeah and uh, and then we did the uh, My Way album of Sinatra songs and then uh, a couple of years later we decided to do uh, a second Sinatra tribute and and uh, we were actually nominated for a Grammy for that for the latest one for that's life and uh, we won a Grammy for each of those other other two records that I mentioned and uh, you know I, I had to uh, I called in my friend Matt Rawlings who's a great awesome musician and producer arranger but when when uh, when Willie's camp told me they wanted to do that Gershwin record I said hey I love that stuff, but uh, I said I got to think of somebody to help me do that because I want it to sound authentic. I don't want it to sound like my hillbilly butt trying to be pop, you know. So I called Matt up and asked him if he wanted to help me do it, and it, it was a natural fit, you know, because I love Matt's play and I've worked with him on sessions before and. And uh, it just worked out, and, and uh, so we did the Gershwin record. And when the Sinatra thing come up, I said, "If it ain't broke, don't fix it." You know. <laughs> so I called Matt again. We did that, and then the second Sinatra thing come around, and so this is the third album that we've done, me and him and Willie. I love all those all of those albums. They're they're really just a, a delight to listen to. Well, thank you. You know, I hadn't. Uh, I knew we were going to talk this morning, and I haven't listened to that life in uh, I don't know, probably three or four or five months. So I, I listened to it as I was having coffee this morning. It was it was fun. Goes by, goes by easy. Hmm. Yeah, definitely. Well, before we go, I want to say hello to a couple people who I th I think will be watching: Larry Bastian and Buzz Rabin who I know are friends of yours. Oh, yeah, I love those guys. Great people and great, great writers. Great, great all around. But uh, my last question, you know, speaking of these friends, uh, you've written with so many great writers, Dean Dillon, Bill Anderson, the late Hank Cochran. You produced people like Willie Nelson, George Jones, uh, Kenny Chesney had your songs recorded by people who will go down in music history. You know, I mean, like all the names I put at the beginning listed at the beginning. So my last question, and also I should say newly inducted into the Nashville songwriters hall of fame. What is the best thing about being buddy cannon? Oh gosh. Getting up every morning, taking a deep breath. You know? <laughs> and, uh, you know, talking to my, you know, my phone rings a lot. And when I look at my caller ID, I'm blown away by the name that pops across it. You know, um, 
it's it's uh it's great that I've got so many friends, you know, my family, everybody is still healthy, you know. Uh it's just uh I have no complaints, you know. And uh I just wanna keep making making music as long as somebody wants to work with me, you know. And I haven't been writing much lately, but I'm I've got I can feel the fire <laughs> you know, and uh I, I'm getting ready to try to see if I can write something worth playing for somebody. Well, Buddy Cannon, thank you so much for your, for being generous and coming on here, answering all my questions. Well, thank you, Paul. It's great talking to you. Oh, yeah. So, live or going to be archived? Uh, I'll I'll edit it just a little, and it'll be up, and people will be able to they'll be able to watch or listen whenever they want, twenty four seven. I really enjoyed listening to the Buzz Raven. Uh, thing the buzz and I—I I mean, I love Buzz Raven songs. He's got—he's got a ton of of songs that nobody's ever heard. He when we signed him to Mel Tillis's company when right after I went there, I was a fan already, and uh, <clears throat> so we signed Buzz over there, and he, gosh, he just—it would take him a month to write a song. He worked that hard on them, you yeah, know? and. Uh, there's a there's a catalog of unrecorded songs over there that are that are just unbelievable. And if anybody gets a chance, try and find his album that he came out with, Cross Country Cowboy. Oh yeah. Yeah. Great singer also, Buzz Reed. Oh yeah. He's yeah. got a song that the one of my favorite songs is the is the song that Ringo Starr recorded. Title of Ringo's country album called Buku's of Blues. Yeah, and I love that song. I've tried to get everybody to cut it too, but uh, <laughs> so far no luck. But I love that song. Eventually, someone will, I'm sure. Oh yeah. Well, Buddy Cannon, thank you so much. Thank you, Paul. Until next time. Yeah, man. <laughs> enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. Thank you for stopping by today. If you enjoyed our program, consider telling a friend about it. The Paul Leslie Hour is made possible through people just like you. So you want to keep the show going, right? Go to thepaulleslie.com. That's thepaulleslie.com. Click on Support the Show. And thanks to everyone who contributes. Performance of the intro music is courtesy of John Primerano, The Entertainer, written by Scott Joplin. End credit theme music is courtesy of John Primerano, the traditional song, Corina, Corina. Your announcer is Dan Gold. Hey, that's me. The show is hosted and produced by Paul Leslie. And we'll see you next time on the Paul Leslie Hour.